You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the part against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. All right, Hal. I'll go in through the emergency airlock. Without your space helmet, Dave, you're going to find that rather difficult. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Al? 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 Hi everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we're going to hit another classic. This being the 50th anniversary of 2001, we are going to go all out in terms of looking at the film, the sequel, the novel that was written alongside the film, and the comic books. They're actual comic book adaptations of the films. Very, very, very different things, even though they're talking about the same subject. So many different interpretations of what's happening in this film. A very baffling film, aside from this is a film that has everything. It has cutting-edge, revolutionary special effects, an artistic vision, an artistic story being told in front of your eyes, a sequel that is completely different than the original in terms of style, a book that helps quite a bit to explain a lot of things that are happening, and the comic book adaptations, which is yet another way of visualizing what's happening, you know, with these particular stories and the, you know, the individual artist's you know, renditions of what's going on. This is a film that I had seen many, many, many years ago for the first time. I would imagine it, it was in, in one of its repeat screenings. I probably saw it in 1970, uh, let's say six, seven or eight maybe even nine. It was it was the late 70s. It was definitely not, you know, when it first came out, I wasn't even born then. I was, I was born in 70, and this movie came out in 68. But just like Star Wars, which obviously spoke to me a little clearer, more coherently, this is a movie that I remember seeing, but I could not understand anything about it. I remember 
visuals of sitting in the theater and seeing this thing and again not understanding anything about it little did i know that even later in my life and in other people's lives whether you're a teenager or an adult you will still be just as confused as what you're watching but it is the type of film that you need to be a little older you need to be a little more savvy i guess to start to understand what this director is telling you but more specifically showing you it's art it's style it's filmmaking and it's technology all you know packaged in a big sci-fi box <laughs> for you to unwrap so let's begin with 2001 a space odyssey what did i teach you you are the duke of new york you're a number one you will not laugh you will not cry you will learn by the numbers i will teach you can you dig it open the pod bay doors hell i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that that's Horn of Satan! <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. I'd like to talk today about 2001 A Space Odyssey and its sequel, 2010. Obviously, these movies are connected, but they're somewhat stylistically different. They are both based on work by Arthur C. Clarke, the prolific sci-fi writer. However, the development is a little different, uh, you know, when it comes to how, you know, which came first, to, you know, the novel or the movie, the movie or the novel. Traditionally, either things are based on a book or the book is then written after the movie, you know, as a tie-in novelization, which is the type of thing I've been doing lately in terms of collecting as many of these older movie tie-ins that I could get my hands on. But for 2001, the first film, apparently things worked out a little different. First of all, I cannot really review the film and give it its proper respect, if you will, because this is a film that is, it's kind of like, you know, Citizen Kane. It's a landmark film. It is considered to be historic. It is really an art film uh, when you think about it. And it is supposed to keep you kind of guessing as to what's going on, which is a thing with Stanley Kubrick, which again, I can't even really give you a definitive profile on Stanley Kubrick. The fact that the man was a you know, genius filmmaker, the way he structures his films, the way the films look, the way people act in his films, the it, it's a whole other experience. You cannot put your finger on it. You can't describe it. You just have to experience it. 2001 is your basic food group, if you will. Uh, anybody in this particular genre that, you know, we love sci-fi horror, you know, fantasy, that kind of thing. 2001 gave you a, a dual helping of mind-bending technological jumps in terms of special effects. It redefined special effects from the old, from the older, let's say clunky-ish kind of 50s and 60s sci-fi to what basically allows you to turn the key into what Star Wars then became. This is pre-CGI, obviously. This is the late 60s. But the type of special effects that were created for this film, it just completely blew everything out of the water. Completely. Many of those people that worked on 2001, they later springboarded into your Star Wars, your Star Treks, your Blade Runner, you know, you name it. And that's, you know, all that stuff kind of started there and then exploded. At the same time, 
you're dealing with Kubrick and the set design was also something that was just incredible, you know, combined with his aesthetic, his particular aesthetic for filmmaking uh, of the way that he tells the stories. And that is something you could find, you know, if you watch a lot of his films, you, you might see a lot of that. You see the, oh, I could, you see these patterns. You see these very, very long shots, quiet shots, not a lot of action taking place, people thinking <laughs> without a narrative behind it. You absorb the scene, slowness, you know, those quiet moments. That's what he's all about. And this film has a lot of that built into it. Now, when you try to explain the film or explain, especially the ending of the film is something that is always up in the air and, and your, your casual viewer, I think is meant to kind of step away from this film and make up their own mind. Uh, this is where a lot of that comes from of the, you know, you've seen some certain films that the director says it's up for interpretation. Well, this is exactly that kind of film. Once you get to the very end of the film, it is completely up for interpretation. The film has more or less three parts. Part one is the dawn of man, which shows you, you know, Neanderthal man, or even before that, uh, the point in human history where man all of a sudden jumped from one species to the next. Something made him be one notch above the rest of his other living beings around them. In this particular case, it's the discovery of weapons. One particular tribe of ape-like men figuring out that if they have a weapon, in this particular case, a bone from an animal, they could use it to break things up as a tool, but more important, to defend themselves against other tribes and to attack other tribes. So in a way, you're seeing the evolution of man and in a very sci-fi kind of twist, they're linking it to the appearance of this monolith. Pops out of nowhere. In the film, you just have no clue whatsoever what this is. It did give you zero. A lot of the music tells the story in terms of gives you the feeling of something important and something dangerous and something powerful happening. But nobody is spoon-feeding you any answers. From there, you jump to the future. And the future is the future even for people watching the film at the time of the film premiere. The film came out in, I think, 69. And they are projecting what the world is like in the year 2001. And even a little before that. 1999, 2000, 2001, that kind of thing. So you jump forward to all of a sudden, this government official is on his way to the moon, you know, via spaceships of the time. Not exactly uh, a space shuttle-y looking design, but slightly, you know, close to it. Rendezvousing first at a space station, and there uh, giving a briefing about something that was found in the moon that they're going to investigate. And they're kind of keeping it quiet from everyone because they don't want people to panic or whatever. And then we find out that what they found is some kind of a monolith, once again. Obviously, they have no clue of what happened, you know, millions of years ago when, you know, the story started. But it appears to be something that was buried, intentionally buried in the moon. That all of a sudden, when they go to the site, you know, to examine it a little more, this shrieking sound appears that kind of debilitates everybody around there. 
and it appears to be some kind of a communication taking place between the monolith and somewhere in outer space. We jump forward again into the kind of like the third part of the film, let's say, and we are introduced to the crew of the Discovery that are on their way to Saturn, which consists of the two more, I don't want to say pilots, but the two people in charge, Hal, the computer that controls everything, and I think about maybe three other astronauts uh, in hibernation that have already been sleeping as part of the trip. The rest of that movie at that point is about how something goes wrong with Hal that results in him killing first one of those two astronauts, then the other three in hibernation killing them too, and then how the last astronaut has to deactivate Hal in order to be able to survive without Hal killing him in the process, completely not knowing why this is all happening. By the time he's able to deactivate Hal, he is the last man left in the ship, basically. And he finds out through the programs, the recordings and the, and the archives, that the mission that he's on has been diverted to Jupiter and that they felt it was better not to let any of the astronauts even know about it ahead of time. They wanted him to divert the mission, but he also didn't have all the information either. So the speculation at the time is why did Hal malfunction? Why did he go nuts and kill everybody? As the movie is reaching the final portion of it is where it really gets freaky because as they approach the area that they're supposed to be uh, approaching, another monolith appears floating in space. And at that point, the remaining astronaut goes out there in one of the pods to examine it. And he seems to be somehow either brought into it or something happens where all of a sudden he's traveling in what could be another universe, another dimension, another plane of existence, whatever. This is where the film gets completely trippy, freaky, and we see these amazing special effects of him just traveling through space, what could be space. We don't know if it's space and time. But then at a certain point, he arrives what appears to be in a manufactured hotel room almost, which again, the viewer of the film has no clue what's happening. He's like, what the hell just happened? What, where is he now? But his age seems to start to change. He becomes older and he's walking through this hotel room and he's sitting there in a bathrobe, you know, in a smoking jacket, you know, that kind of thing. It's a, like a luxurious kind of hotel looking room. It's very quiet and eerie, and the sound effects and the music are very strange. And at a certain point, he's even older. He looks even older than before. And at a certain other point, he's kind of like on his deathbed in that hotel. A very strange-looking hotel room. And finally, at the end, we see him change once again into what appears to be a baby in utero. So... We're like, what the hell is going on here? And and this gigantic kind of baby head in a bubble seems to be approaching Earth. So that's what the director gives you. This is the Kubrick portion of the film. We can't really get much out of him. And that is why many, many times the director said it's up for interpretation. Once you get to that final point, you're on your own. And he does that on purpose. So 
again, many times what you would normally do is you would go to the book that hopefully was written before. This one wasn't. And going to the book that was written after also wouldn't help you, but it wasn't done that way anyway. This book apparently was written, from what I've been reading, at the same time as the script was being developed. So as the script is being written, you know, from a story, you know, from a, from an idea of Arthur C. Clarke collaborating with Stanley Kubrick, as these things are being written, they're kind of taking their own little paths here or there. The book is different. The book is very, very good. And it explains, to a certain extent, not completely, a lot more of what is actually taking place. So, one of the things I loved about the book is that it devotes more time than the movie does towards the beginning of the movie. The whole ancient man discovering the monolith and discovering weapons and that sort of thing. You spend more time to you know, analyzing how these creatures are evolving and changing and how all of a sudden this thing makes them, directly gives them the idea or the suggestion of being able to do something more. It's that spark in their mind that makes them just a little smarter than the next one. And he does, like I said, spend a good chunk of time there in the book. The middle is pretty much the same. The whole thing of trying to get to the mission, trying to keep the mission quiet. Uh, you know, Dr. Floyd uh, traveling to the space station and then traveling to the moon. It is more direct in understanding that there was a message, that blindingly loud sound that everybody hears, you know, when they're in the crater in the moon near the monolith. It's basically some possible message that was triggered, you know, once man was able to uncover this device and once the sun hits it or something like that, it's like an automatic uh, message that gets sent back to another part of the universe, letting maybe its creators know, hey, guess what? Man is ready now. <laughs> they progressed enough. They be, If they can get here on their own, they're ready for another lesson, if you will. And then at the end, I don't think there is any direct connection between Hal and these possible space aliens, but it's kind of like a different story being told altogether about, I guess, the dangers of technology. You know, the thing that in the beginning of the film makes us survive at the end of the film could potentially hurt us. But by then we already jumped to the, what is the monolith part of the film and the story being told. And there is where Arthur C. Clarke goes a little more into detail as to what exactly is happening. The fact that he is changing in age, the fact that he is in a place that appears to be manufactured for him, as if some beings are watching him to see how he reacts to these surroundings. The surroundings are familiar surroundings, but not specifically familiar to him. It looks as if they're pictures that somebody saw, some being might have seen, or video, or television, or something, because... They do talk about how when he picks up a book and he really looks at it close enough, like if he opens the pages, there's nothing inside. So it's as if they replicated the veneer of something, but not the detail of something. He talks about how he's, he goes into the fridge and, and eats food, but the food doesn't taste anything like what it should taste like. And they kind of go through these descriptions to the point where, you know... Again, he doesn't give you 
of an explanation, but there's enough of it there, way more than the film, to let you know that this is something to do with man evolving into whatever comes next. Whatever comes next has no age limitations, distance, you know, space and time, all that kind of distance, space and time. It's some kind of an evolvement that's taking place. And he does leave it somewhat ambiguous too, because obviously this is a science fiction writer, you know, trying to write a story. He doesn't give you all the facts because there are no facts. It's a science fiction story. It's a theory, if you will. But that's kind of where he leaves it. He does leave it at a bit of a cliffhangery, what just happened kind of moment, but it does give you a little more explanation of what is happening. And it all depends, again, on how you want to view it. You want to view it from a filmmaking point of view, it is going to be more ambiguous on purpose. You know, Kubrick could have gone more direct, could have been uh, more forthcoming because he had the writer and the writer was being a little bit more forthcoming, but he purposely wanted, I think, to be more artistic about it, which is something that, you know, in a lot of these modern films, I mean, most recently, I remember uh, a couple of months ago, I reviewed Annihilation and how the end of the film is also very up in the air where you have to kind of try to make sense of it yourself in a similar situation where you do have a writer that this is based on granted this has already been pre-written but this writer then wrote more books about it to explain that and the director decided not to go in that direction here with kubrick granted you didn't have more books afterwards ready to be to explain things more but that's still his decision to not be very very clear especially about the ending so you know if you are a fan of the movie like i said before earlier in the show there are probably tons of books that can give you so much theory and so much philosophy of of what everything means and and the possible differences and this and that yes those are out there and i cannot you know i i i don't have I don't have those books and I don't have the time because there's so many of them out there. But as a basic understanding of the film, one quick and easy way is to get the original book. I found it on eBay, maybe for $2. It's excellent. It's a, it's worth, it's worth every penny of it. And it would help you a lot. Now in the eighties, I think it was 84. They made the sequel 2010. Now 2010 is a very different movie in terms of it does not have any of the artsy aspects of it because Kubrick was not involved in this different director more of a straight film you know it was going to hit certain beats but that was fine it expands on the story it clarifies even more you know Hal's problem and why he malfunctioned doesn't really give you too much more insight but it clarifies the information you kind of already knew. It's not artsy at all. I mean, it's a good-looking film, but it does not follow the, the Kubrick style, if you will. The sets look different. The sets, everything looks a little smaller. With a Kubrick film, it's like golden age of Hollywood filmmaking. Huge, large, expensive. Here, it's a little more economical. The special effects are very good, but they're obviously not 
groundbreaking. The, the, these are you know, eight, by 1984. You're still using the technology that kind of started in 1969 with 2001, but it looks very good. You know, the stars are good. You know, Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, you know, Bob Balaban, pretty well, you know, well-known actors. Scheider plays Dr. Floyd, which is the, the same character that we saw in the first film, obviously by a different actor. And here, basically the story gets pushed forward a little more. There are novels, and there are more novels, 2010, and I think there's at least two other novels that followed that by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but this one basically pushes the story forward a little more into how there has to be this this Russian-American collaboration take place in order to go to where the discovery was abandoned. And they have to get there fast because it's falling out of orbit. They still haven't solved the mystery of what that message that was sent up there all these years before. But the Americans can't get there in time. The Russians can. So they have to kind of collaborate while at the same time, you know, politically things are going downhill. So by the time they get there and they approach and they start doing their tests, politically, there's more craziness going on here. Now, yes, a lot of it feels like it's a product of the times. This is you know, Cold War era filmmaking, and you did always have that Russian-American, you know, war breaking out scenarios happening, you know, looming over everything in the 80s. So that's a possibility of why that was the, the conflict that was picked as the, you know, the clock is ticking kind of thing. And the other thing also that's very different, I think, is the sets. The sets don't have that massiveness, like I said earlier, of 2001. The color schemes are a little darker. Now, granted, a lot of it is taking place inside the Soviet ship. So the Soviet ship is supposed to, I guess, look a little more claustrophobic, a little darker than the American, you know, all white, big, bright. So you do have that difference. The Leonov, I think, uh, which is the Russian ship, it kind of feels more like uh, something out of Alien, you know, like the Nostromo. It feels... Uh, cramped and almost like a submarine which you have you know you get that weird feel low ceilings and the you know all the gear is just jam-packed into it very good special effects for the time but then eventually we do get into the discovery and we do get a little bit not all of it just a little bit of those original sets obviously recreated because i don't think that stuff ever survived all those years and then by the end we do get a further explanation of all the sudden ton of monoliths, millions of them appear over Jupiter, and it kind of starts to absorb Jupiter, and Jupiter more or less explodes into a sun. And a second sun is basically created in our solar system, and that triggers everybody to kind of de-escalate this war footing that they're on and, and possibly bring peace to everyone. Uh, however, at the same time, one of the moons of of Jupiter, I think it's Europa, they start to notice that there might be actual life down there. This normally frozen planet, by the end of the movie, we see a shot of it being kind of like a tropical environment. All of a sudden, something is growing there, but they purposely send out this message, this space aliens, I guess, or whatever, through Dave Bauman, this astronaut that kind of returns in kind of like a ghostly kind of form to talk to Floyd, and then he visits Earth quickly to say goodbye to his wife and say goodbye to his mother and, you know, does these things, then the message is that they're not to touch that planet. You are not allowed to land there. So they're being kind of told, Earthlings, that here, here's a new sun for you, and you're not to go over there. And that's how it kind of ends. Again, a little questioning, <laughs> what exactly do they mean? Again, you know, 
not as artsy as Kubrick, but they're trying to kind of shoo in the mysterious artsiness at the end. Then, on the comic book side, we also have a couple of entries into the 2001-2010 scenarios. For 2001, we have a Marvel Treasury Special Edition put out in 1976. Now, this is very somewhat important and unusual because apparently they didn't get the rights until 76, almost eight years later, to be able to put a comic book version of it. What's interesting is that this comic book version by Jack Kirby, legendary artist, was kind of like a launching pad to an actual series of comics having to do with 2001. Very way, way, way out there kind of stories. But at least this first initial one was more or less the comic book adaptation that we're kind of used to getting, you know, with, with Marvel. What's unusual about this is that with previous comic book adaptations, and again, this one is not considered to be the Marvel Comics super special line of comics, which you have a lot of stuff, Star Trek, Blade Runner, Conan, For Your Eyes Only, Close Encounters, The Empire Strikes Back. This is, a no- this is when they started really putting those together. But this particular one that we're talking about right now, with 2001, was before that. And because it was before that, they kind of took a different route altogether. Off the bat, they purposely decided to combine both the novel and the movie. So in other words, when you look at these panels, they look very much like the movie in terms of what's happening, you know, what's what you're seeing, even though the, the drawings don't match it that much. You know, it's the same story, but it's kind of being viewed through a different lens almost. There's a lot of that whole dawn of man sequence that they go into much more detail here in the comic that you actually do get to see in the movie and like i said it is more i think faithful story-wise i think to the book because it goes into much more explaining things the movie wants you to visually see things and not so much hear them the book gives you more to read obviously you know the words that are being put there in front of you to kind of understand what is happening. And the same thing here in this comic. They purposely choose to do that. The colors are different. The colors do not resemble what you see in the movie either. It is a completely different way of looking at it. It's um, it's more comic bookish, you know, more colorful. Everything pops a little more. There's so many sequences and, and vistas that are never in the movie. Uh, you know, they show you here all the animals that are you know, around the apes before the apes decide they can hunt the animals. And you never see all these animals in the movie. They go way overboard. The monolith almost seems to be kind of like floating in the air at some point in the comic, as if it is not partially, you know, encrusted in the ground. Uh, It is way, 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 way more descriptive in terms of letting you know that the second these apes are touching the monolith, that something is happening to them. It is so clear, you know, that this is what's going on. When we jump forward in time to the future, you know, the famous throw the bone up in the air kind of sequence, for some reason, they decided to make the space vehicle, the vehicle that Dr. Floyd is traveling in towards the space station, make it look more like the space shuttle. Now, this is 1976, so it is conceivable that they were already trying to kind of update uh, the information that we were putting out there. 
So it resembles a more realistic, modern, you know, spacecraft, as opposed to the, you know, the Pan Am flight that he's on that is a little different. It's kind of, you know, it, it has that uh, slick space shuttle design, but it has much pointier tips and a pointier tail. This one resembles more like the shuttle we're used to seeing, you know, uh, back then. So it's it's really odd. The other thing is that there are certain pages, and, and most of them seem to be like the introductions to to different parts of the comic, the way that the comic was kind of spaced apart into chapters, where it looks like they're using a combination of photographs and art. In that introductory part two page, that's called The Thing on the Moon, we see what, I mean, to me, it looks like a black and white-ish kind of photograph, but they also inserted a, a space shuttle looking <laughs> vehicle in there. So I don't understand exactly why they did that. What's taking place pretty much mimics the film. The actors look almost nothing like the actors they used in the movie. But the colors, again, completely different. And everything that the movie you visually saw that did not need explanation, even simple technical things, uh, here they have to describe them to you, which is, I guess that's part of the comic book thing, is you have to be able to read. They didn't want to go in the direction of the director where he's going to just give you visuals and you have to figure it out. And I'm not even talking about the ending here. The sequence where Dr. Floyd is uh, being questioned by some of his colleagues before the meeting, you know, it's pretty well done. And I think one of the biggest problems or challenges, if you will, here is that with the movie, you are used to seeing a very widescreen presentation. 2001 is, is like watching, you know, a mural. And, and this is, I know, it's a Kubrick thing. But here, you know, only certain strips, certain windows of the comic are able to go in that mural mode, that widescreen mode where you actually see a lot. But then a lot of them are your regular square boxes where everything looks a little more tight. Which, again, you cannot replicate Kubrick in, in, in comic book form. So this is what they're giving you, something a little bit different. When Dr. Floyd actually reaches, is approaching the moon, once again, they are giving you these photographic-looking renditions to me of the, the ship that he's on, the actual moon itself, which, I, I, again, I don't understand why they decided to do that. Because when you then look at the next panel, it is so obvious that it's... A comic, you know, something that's been drawn. They do show you this kind of bus that brings Dr. Floyd from his ship to the base, let's say, which I don't remember that being in the movie much. Uh, there's conversations that take place. Characters look nothing like they do. The meeting room where he briefs all of the other doctors, again, looks nothing, nothing like the big meeting room that they had. And the people that are at this meeting look absolutely nothing like the people that you had before. And the way that they react, again, it's so comic bookish, I guess you could say. They just kind of look in awe and they're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? It's unbelievable. What is this thing? I can't, it can't be native to the moon. That's right. It's not a natural formation. But where does it come from? Who would have done? Who could have made it? You know, it's, you get these reactions that are so kind of cliche-ish. And, and when you look at the picture of these people, it's like, wow, these, these are not the people in the movie. <laughs> the little 
space flight bus that they take to the actual site of the monolith is it's pretty true, pretty accurate. Them actually walking down there and the reaction uh, that they start to get is also more faithful to the story in the novel than the film. From there, we jump to the Discovery, uh, which is another chapter post, if you will, called Ahead Lie the Planets, Part 3. And the introduction to that is the what you see is the tip of the Discovery kind of coming into frame, but it is completely kind of out of whack in size to the actual Discovery. And what's unusual is that once you get to the next page, they, it's accurate. So it's like there's discrepancies even between panels, which is a little odd. The color schemes, once again, are off. The color palette of the movie is very white and antiseptic. Here they just throw colors left and right. Obviously, they take advantage of the spacesuits that are colorful. That's one thing that's different in the movie is the spacesuits to tell, kind of tell them all apart. But the walls, the floor, all that other stuff, which should have been nice and white, here they don't go in that direction. And again, it's some kind of an artistic choice that was made to not visually try to replicate the film. One thing the comic book is able to do that the movie cannot, that actually works pretty well, is, again, because of the movie is, you know, you're watching a movie and it's widescreen, you know, left to right, very wide, you don't get to see too much top and bottom things you get to see very wide things and when you have that whole sequence of the inside of the discovery turning and you have one of the astronauts uh jogging in the comic you're able to see the entire rotation from top to bottom so you actually can see him jogging in what appears to be the ceiling of the room while there's the other astronaut in the bottom now, granted, just like everything else in this comic book, it is full of descriptive narratives that you never get in the film. But that is one great advantage of the comic book is that you are able to create those angles that you could never get on a, on a film. And even if it wasn't that widescreen, it would still be a little awkward, you know, to be able to show that much top and bottom, you know, information. In the film, they use more of a traditional, you know, cut effect to be able to see where the guy is running in that particular location. But here you get it all in one shot, which looks really cool. What's also very interesting here is that in the movie, when Hal is reading their lips, you know, when they're trying to talk in, in, in private, and you get the impression that something is not right. And, and you don't even get it immediately to tell you the truth. You know, you kind of see that the lips are moving, but you're just kind of, you know, you, you could infer that later on. But as it's happening, you're just also probably being confirmed that, yes, they are talking, but you cannot hear them. It reinforces the fact that you cannot hear these people. The whole lip reading thing becomes important or it makes more sense later as to how he was able to figure that out in the comic it is very very overstated <laughs> in terms of you know a little bubble here or a little cluster there of information that tells you as if it even says you know it looks almost as if he could be reading their lips it's like oh damn there it is <laughs> they just gave it away so you know you know the second they step out of that pod that he knows exactly what's going on. Uh, now, granted, did you have that feeling during the film? A little harder to tell. 
in the uh, comic, you also get a lot more of the pod that Hal triggers to go to kind of attack Poole, which is the other astronaut, not Bowman. And here, it's very uh, explicit, shows you that he's coming towards him with those claws, and then he grabs him, and he crushes him, and there's like even blood coming out of his mouth. And then as a result of that crushing, he's he's, he's sent off into space. We never see that in the film. And I honestly don't know if that's even implied. What we do see is that his uh, hoses are cut and he is struggling uh, with the air, I guess, of, of these hoses that have been severed, apparently. So I don't know exactly if that was the intent, you know, in the film, the fact that we don't see what happened, but it is definitely different. Once again, we do have a few more shots of those weird, almost colorized picture looking panels that um, they just kind of don't make too much sense to me. I don't understand why they decided to go in that direction. The other unusual sequence is when Bowman is trying to get back into the ship and he, you know, remember he, he docks, but he can't get in. He gets near it, but he can't really get fully in there. And in the movie, he kind of has to blast his way in. The problem is that he had never taken, I believe he never took the helmet with him. So he has to do this quick space walk, if you will, fast enough for him not to obviously, you know, uh, suffocate or lose uh, pressure or whatever. But here, he's able to do this because he has his helmet the entire time, which is unusual. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly why. I think he was just in such a rush to get out there to, to rescue Poole that he, he forgot to put his helmet on or whatever because he was on the pod. Uh, but I do remember in the movie later on when he's walking around there, he's got a different color helmet on purpose because of the fact that he he lost the other helmet or he couldn't find it or he had to put on a different helmet. And obviously, just like it's been happening all along here, him deciding to leave the ship after he deactivates Hal is something that has to be very, very thoroughly explained in the comic book. He's talking about how the, you know, the he has to abandon ship. There's nothing left there for him. You know, the, the, the ship is slowly going to be losing power, you know, life support, all that stuff. So there's nothing left. So the only thing he figures he can do is just get on the life pod and go out. And as he's out there, he experiences once again the monolith this time showing up. The monolith here, again, the dimensions look different. For some reason, they made it a little more thicker, less mattressy looking <laughs> and to create the effect i guess of it doing something that other than just a couple of shimmering lights they do these little black bubbles everywhere to to, to give you the, the sense that something is happening you know that's amazing or something now the trip into the monolith itself whatever passage whatever thing happens here they go completely completely nuts because they get as creative as humanly possible with how to depict that happening. And they show you the, the, one of the things that they're able to do here is they show you the pod as it's traveling, not just that point of view that we got with the film of all these lights coming at you, but because they're capable, you know, because they're drawing this, they show you the pod, very small, let's say, and how it's traveling through a section of something. And they intercut it, obviously, with, with Bowman's face and how he's reacting to it and his thoughts and all that stuff, which, again, we don't get any of... There is no narrative whatsoever towards the end of the film. It's just us to be kind of blown away and to interpret what's happening. But here, just like the book, 
that I mentioned earlier, they are able to give you more very specific descriptive statements of what looks like is happening. You know, they talk about the, the hotel room looking setting. They talk about how he's reacting to all these things, how he seems to be spending time because he's aging. You know, as we see, as we go from one panel to the next, we see how he's aging, aging, aging all the way through to the point where he's basically in his deathbed as a very old man. And the monolith is there. And once again, there's another change that takes place. But here they specifically focus on him on the bed changing into that baby kind of form. And then you see this kind of red orb glowing towards a planet and it gets bigger and bigger and it starts to turn. And it is that baby head that we do see, you know, at the end of the film. But the implication here is more that he, you know, they're telling you basically he is now this new evolved man or whatever next evolutionary step man is supposed to take and how he is kind of, I guess, uh, visiting the universe or traveling through space or something like that. So they are giving you a little more specific information, very interpretive. Part of it comes from the book, visuals, again, a lot of it from the movie, but they decided at this point to kind of mix everything up and give you a little something more definite because it is after all a comic book and who is reading comic books you know it's mainly kids and, and young adults let's say you know this is a very very i don't want to say dangerous but a risky uh, property to to try to deal with because while yes you do have the space adventure kind of narrative in terms of, uh, you know, a computer coming after you and all that kind of stuff. In the beginning, you have, the, you know, the, the, the prehistoric man. At the end, it just goes bananas, <laughs> uh, which maybe it does work for a comic book. I don't know. It's, it's just a difficult adaptation. The book also has, at the end, what's called a 2001 A Space Retrospective. And it's kind of like a, uh, a retrospective from a writer. His name is David Anthony Kraft. Again, this is back in 76... Uh, this is pre-Star Wars even, so it's kind of like bonus feature or bonus information. So you can kind of read a little bit of the background of, you know, somehow how the movie was made and the, the, the reaction that a lot of people had, including this writer that kind of changed his mind. At first, he, he wasn't very happy with the film, and then he learned to appreciate it more and more the more he thought about it and the more he heard about it, you know, to kind of give the film its proper importance that... You know, at first, not everybody jumped on board. A lot of people were so confused by it. Uh, even critics were so critical, <laughs> if you will, of if it's non-standard storytelling technique that they kind of shunned it away a little bit at first. And then years as the years grew, granted, keep in mind, like I mentioned earlier, this came out in 76, but the movie came out in 68. So there was time, and they even mentioned it in this article, for people to really get into the movie and to understand it, to give it enough time to understand what exactly is going on here. Uh, so that's a cute little cute little article that they include here. And then all the way at the end, they also give you a little bio on Jack Kirby, you know, the credits, a couple of more drawings, and they also give you a couple of what looks like sketches of, you know, preliminary work before the final product of what these uh, chapter headings were going to look like and that sort of thing. I'm reading this on a PDF from an online source because I could not, I didn't have the, um, the actual comic on hand. 
It's a little expensive until I can find myself a good one, you know, a nice cheapy one. But luckily, some of these comics, they're all online. Somebody was nice enough to upload it as a PDF. And, you know, you can blow it up and look at it any way you want. And it really helps to do that. Now, very different with the 2010 comic book, which is also a Marvel adaptation. We get a completely different look, you know, whatsoever here. Right off the bat... What I have here is the actual two-issue comic. Two small comics, you know, issues, uh, as opposed to, you know, one, you know, everything into one issue. This one I got fairly recently through an eBay purchase. And what's really interesting here is that what they do is very similar to the movie. They recap a little bit of what happened last at 2001. Uh, so they at least give us a little bit of that. The artwork, right from the cover and into the book itself, it is some of the most accurate-looking, photorealistic, I think, that I've ever seen for a comic of that era, you know, for, for, for something from the, from the mid-'80s. You definitely get the feeling that there was no issue of having to work around people's likenesses or anything like that, like they've done in the past. Scheider, Lithgow, Balban, all these actors, even the, the actor that plays Bowman, uh, I think his name is Durella, they look dead, dead, dead on. It is incredible how good they look. The book itself follows the story very faithfully. I don't really see anything extra or different anywhere. It almost feels to me like they went almost shot by shot, you know, the angles. Again, the thing that sticks out the most is the likenesses. I don't see, you know, how they could have done this without having to go frame by frame on the film, because that's that's the feeling I get is that they they froze images, you know, you know, frames from the film and they drew them because they're that good. Now with that given, once again, you do have some sort of comic book aesthetics that you cannot get away from and one of them is colors they do go a little bit into the comic bookish kind of colors to separate things even in space where something might be just dark with very little color here they try to punch it up a little bit you know to make it a little more comic bookish the russian actors look a little a little bit wonky, like they didn't put that much time into them, let's say. And even inside some of the different drawings of Rush Hyder, they look a little off. But you definitely get the feeling that they weren't purposely trying to stay away from any of these likenesses. They were just doing the best that they could. Like I mentioned, script-wise, they're pretty much dead on. They're following it to the letter. And because you have so many scenes, I mean, granted, you can't have every scene, but... Some of these scenes are so thoroughly depicted that they are able to, you know, break up all the little windows, all the little boxes uh, into much smaller panes. Uh, this way they can incorporate as much information as possible. It's really hard to say if the comic had any influence from the book because I haven't read the book yet. Ironically, the book for 2010, the novel, which is also by Arthur C. Clarke, obviously, this is a book that I owned a very long time ago, and I honestly do not remember if I ever had a chance to read it. At some point, for some bizarre reason, I ended up with two copies of the book. And after my move, I think I ended up with zero copies of the book. Somehow, I lost 
all of my copies. So recently, again, through eBay, I think I must have paid yeah, two bucks or something. You know, I was able to get another copy because I was so happy with the novel for 2001, how much more it added to the story that I figured, well, you know what, let's, let's give that one a try. Maybe there's, you know, a, a good chunk of information that I can get from that one. But because I haven't read it yet, I can't really compare it to the comic to see if there's anything new. Once again, looking at the comic, it makes it look very, very much as if it is following the film. More than anything else, it's the film that's that's really important here. It's also very good, I think, in the comic that, you know, as usual, they always have to pick and choose what scenes to show and what to avoid showing. But I'm very glad that at least in the comic they were able to go into those scenes where Bowman is visiting his wife uh, and his mother in his kind of ghostly kind of form. Uh, because uh, those are very important emotional points in the story. And you definitely don't get the feeling that, oh, I wish they had like another issue, like a third issue, because this way you could have added so much more to it. No, I think it's pretty much dead on what, you know, the information that you have, it's pretty accurate, you know, to what you need in order to portray the story. Now, the other thing here is that when you see the interior shots of the Discovery, and this is something that also in the movie I was a little disappointed in, and it's just something that's completely unavoidable, and that is they were not able to replicate. I mean, they did a good job, but I, I'm pretty sure the sets were pretty smaller, let's say in terms of not rebuilding the entire huge sets that they had, you know, for the first original film. So visually, you can't do that in the film, and you couldn't portray that in the film. However, in the comic, because you're dealing with basically redesigning whatever you want, and you can adjust and, and make corrections to something that, let's say, the filmmaker couldn't do, I'm a little surprised they didn't take advantage of that and give you a, a more magnificent, uh, you know, a more film accurate, 2001 film accurate sets. They kind of stayed within the parameters of what was shown in 2010. So even though Roy Scheider's character is spending time in the Discovery in some iconic locations, they don't really go too far beyond that in showing you, you know, more of the kind of stuff that we were used to seeing before. Another thing that's a little different, I think, in the in the comic, in, in the way that it is explained, is that when the eye of Jupiter starts to grow, and, and we know that it is, you know, from the movie, we know it's these, these monoliths that are kind of starting to overtake the planet in some shape or form, creating some kind of black hole. In the comic, it is very, very specific, the way that it is drawn, that it's a perfect circle, if you will, or a perfect oval. And inside that oval, you see a grid of exactly broken up, monolithic kind of looking structures. But it's more like somebody drew lines in a black circle. In the movie, they're able to actually zoom in and you can actually see individual monoliths kind of hovering above each other around each other. But when you pull back, you know, you have the the, the primary figure of, of a circle kind of looking thing. In the comic, they went very specific. Again, I can't tell you if maybe that's because you can't get that much detail on a comic or, or by drawing it on, you know, with pencil, let's say, or, or pen and ink. But it looks more like, uh, like somebody drew a black circle and then put some lines in it <laughs> instead of drawing a whole bunch of little monoliths. So that is a little... 
you know, shortcoming of the comic, I guess. You know, you get what you get. <laughs> what are you going to do? The way in which Jupiter implodes, if you will, is also a little different looking. And it's hard to really say, you know, I, everything is so super accurate that it's hard to really say in this instance if what the material they were dealing with, as far as film footage or pictures or whatever it is, if it was a completed, you know, amount of information, if, for example, the effects were not fully finished, so they couldn't really duplicate it, some things are so dead on, the ships, the space shots, you know, most of the, what you would consider to be special effects heavy things, that when something looks a little different, it's hard to understand whether it's different because they didn't have the resources to be able to know what it was going to look like or because they made some form of an artistic choice that for comic book purposes we're going to make this look different because it looks better this way for comics so overall it's a pretty good you know movie adaptation but like i said you don't get any bonusy kind of material you don't get anything new that you thought oh my god i'm so happy they added this scene or that scene you have between the first and the second film as far as comic book goes, two different renditions, if you will. One of them is so different than the film in certain ways. Things look different. There's more scenes. And we do know because the reference material included the book. And the book has so much more material than the movie because it was naturally meant to be that way. As we mentioned earlier, the film is supposed to be an experience, a visual experience. The book has no visuals. So you have to tell your story through words. Simple, easy to understand. So when they took the comic, they combined both of them. They combined the visuals as much as possible and the written word, you know, from Arthur C. Clarke. And even with the visuals, they really, really couldn't go a Kubrick because that is not the medium this man worked at. You know, he worked at a different kind of medium. So it is a, a, a refreshing new take on a comic book movie adaptation because it is just so different looking. Uh, you know, we compare and contrast to 2010. Like I said, 2010, most of this thing looks like it's frame by frame. Like they just redrew frames of the film. It is so accurate. So I'm very happy with both of those. And, you know, Altogether, you know, when you take the films, you take the movies, you take the books, you know, I am going to continue reading these books, see if they're any better and that sort of thing. And I have no clue how far they go with the other books. I know there's two more books that I'm going to try to read at some point. This is a film that, you know, you can't really encompass in a one hour conversation or even less or even more. There are tons and tons of books, tons and tons of videos on YouTube trying to explain the film, trying to do like a critical essays of this film. And they're very, very good. And, and, you know, again, I could spend hours watching these descriptions because there's so much, you know, if you're a, a movie, uh, you know, for, for the artistic side of the, not just the technical, forget the technical, the technical is this film is a monster. It's, it's just amazing what they did with special effects. But the art of filmmaking, you know, somebody like Kubrick and with this kind of a film, you know, you could spend just weeks analyzing it and going through it. But the best thing about the film is that you don't have to be, you know, 
what we what we used to call it a, an art house snob to be able to appreciate it. Uh, granted, when you're very young, 2001 might seem like what the hell just happened because when I saw it, yeah, I think I was I was probably uh, let me think I was probably maybe about seven or eight years old when I saw it. Uh, I don't remember it making an impression of me other than the fact that I remember some of it. It was no Star Wars. The movie did not speak to me the way that Star Wars spoke to me when I was seven years old. I might have been even younger. Maybe I was six when I saw 2001 or something like that. Because obviously 2001, they keep, they kept rerunning it after it came out because, you know, that's what they used to do back then. They would rerun certain films. But it's definitely one of these type of films that you have to be the right age and you have to be really open-minded because it's a different story structure. It's a different way of showing you things. And obviously, when you try to replicate that or, or give you a different version of that in a different format, whether it's a book or a comic book, you are going to get a different flavor. And, and those other mediums will try to conform more to storytelling techniques that you're more familiar with, that you're more easily digestible, if you will. <laughs> so they're there. I strongly recommend if you've never had the chance, give them a try. I mean, like I said, from 2001 to 2010, two different kind of movies. They're in the same world and the same theme. One of them being very artsy, the other one being more, you know, pop culture palatable you know more regular in terms of how stories are told well i hope you guys enjoyed today's episode we went through 2001 all the way through 2010 as far as the films go we touched upon a little bit of you know novels that are out there and the comic books the comic book adaptations specifically there are plenty of other novels associated with this franchise if you want to call it or storyline if you want to call it that i haven't even touched yet but, the, you know, the, the main one was so satisfying reading it. I couldn't be happier. Probably one of my best movie tie-in experiences. Granted, it was written in a non-traditional manner. You know, the story didn't come from a book that was pre-written. And the book didn't get written after the story either. They kind of happened at the same time, which is super unusual. And I don't know if I've ever had, you know, the, uh, the chance to read a movie tie-in of that manner, you know, yet. Other than that one. But again, a very pleasant experience. This is a, a landmark film. This is a, you know, this is your building blocks of science fiction film genre. You, this is definitely one of these pillars that everything else stands on. Especially stuff that we absolutely love today, like Star Wars. You know, the technology for Star Wars is right there. This was the one of the first, what you would consider to be the, the you know, the adult thinking man's uh, sci-fi. So on behalf of everyone here, thanks for listening. And we will see you here next time at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight? We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. I'm going on the flight. How far away is Jupiter? Far. Mommy said you're gonna be asleep for a long time. Are you gonna die? Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd. Dr. Arlov has encountered some strange data coming from Europa. I will send Max down with a pod. I wouldn't do that. Oh, really? If you want to send a pod down there, send an unmanned one. Hey, a piece of pie. Cake. Piece of cake. Cake, yes. <laughs>
this date is correct, then there's something down there. It is correct. It was organic. There was life. Is it moving? Yes. It's incredible. Listen for a minute. We've got to get out of here. I can't do all of these things with no reason. I can't dis- Forget reason. There's no time to be reasonable. Are you sure you are making the right decision? I think we should stop. You see, something's going to happen. What? Something wonderful. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. <laughs>